No one pronounced Jerusalem's lot dead on the morning of February 6th. No one knew it was. By and large, the town, not knowing it was dead, would go off to their jobs with no inkling of what lay ahead. Welcome to Now Playing's Salem's Lot Retrospective Series. He'll enjoy Mr. Browdell, and he'll enjoy you. Part of the Now Playing Stephen King Movie Series. Hosted by Arnie. Sometimes I wonder, you know, why you're so interested in monsters and magic. Stuart. He's nice enough, but a city guy, a bit abrasive, you know? And Jacob. The boy has a mind like yours, inquisitive and skeptical. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment of this series, and keep coming back as we continue looking at all the Stephen King-based movies. What the hell is all this secrecy about? What the hell's going on in this town? These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. Don't be scared. Come, join us. Today we're discussing Salem's Lot, this time the 2004 version, starring Rob Lowe, Andre Brower, Donald Sutherland, Samantha Mathis back again, hello, Rucker Howard, James Cromwell, Dan Bird, and directed by Michael Solomon. This is Arnie, and give me one good reason why as a podcaster I shouldn't let you die right here. Stuart in L.A. And this is Jacob, the interesting blonde. And this is it. We are back with Salem's Lot. This is now the period we keep doing this where we cover multiple eras of King with a single retrospective. Here, we did a original 70s adaptation of King. Then we did a bastardized has nothing to do with King except he made $100,000 off of it sequel. And now... We do another TV miniseries in the era where people are going back and being more faithful to King. The Stand, his version of The Shining, and Salem's Lot. Yeah, I think that something has transpired by this point. It's worth pointing out, by the time Salem's Lot is being released, most of the movies that people associate with Stephen King are in the public consciousness. People have processed, seen, enjoyed King. They're kind of over it. I don't think of this era as being event television. When Stephen King comes to TV, I don't know that TNT got huge ratings for this. I don't really remember it coming out that much. I had to look it up. Apparently, June 20th and 21st. You know, I don't think of big television coming out in June. I remember this coming out, and yeah, I thought it was telling that this was on TNT, and not too long before that, I believe USA had had Dead Zone, and so he had gone to basic cable stations, and I did think it was a little bit of a change that they're on TNT, we know drama, instead of ABC, where we know big ratings. Yeah, you know, I just, not King being on my radar that much, I do remember there's this time where he was getting on all these cable adaptations. I just figured, you know, when I think of King, I think of It or The Stand, these huge, long novels, and hey, maybe that's the way to go, where you could just have multiple nights, have a mini-series, something like that on cable. I, I just felt like cable was the place at the time to support that. You weren't seeing a lot of that, I didn't think, on network television. 
It's less restrictive. I mean, that's what's good about it is that now they can have a few more swear words. They can have more violence. They can get away with what they could not on regular television. That might be helpful for a horror novel adaptation. You'd want to have it as unrestrained as possible. I do think it's weird we've never had a theatrical version of Salem's Lot. That They're trying again as TV is the weird part to me. That it's the same thing. It's two nights, four hours, three when you take out the commercials, but the same allotment of time to do the same book. I don't find it as that odd, though, because, again, if you look at it, the King phenomenon, it does seem to me as well very 80s. His big books were in the 80s, and then in the late 80s, he sobered up and then wrote Eyes of the Dragon. And not to say he didn't have great, great works in the 90s and this new century, I think he does, but the phenomenon, the ubiquitousness was the 80s. And you mentioned it when we did Carrie, it was the pinnacle, capital I-T. That seems to be when he peaked in public consciousness. It certainly was for me as a reader. I do feel like, yeah, his books were heralded in the 80s, and the TV adaptations were big in the 90s. And in the 2000s, I don't know who was talking about him. But when it comes to the adaptations, I think the same thing is true. In the 80s, we had the big ones that were going to be going through one by one, The Shining. and You had big names attached. Kubrick, John Carpenter, Brian De Palma. By the time we get into the 90s and we start talking about Lawnmower Man, the dark half. A lot of Mick Garris. Let's just face it. <laughs> Mick Garris. I think when we finally finish this, we will have seen more Mick Garris movies than we have of any other director, which is just wrong. <laughs> but it is Stephen King's favorite director. It's the one that is, I guess, most loyal to his source material. And therefore, we are basically seeing King's vision at hand here. But this is not Mick Garris. This is Michael Solomon or Mikhail Solomon. I'm not really sure. He's a, a cinematographer by trade. He shot a lot of big action movies in the 80s, 90s, The Abyss, Backdraft, and then at this point was trying his hand at directing television. He'd done a lot of 24 and action TV, and this was, I guess, a coup for him to land a project this big. Yeah, and what I'm saying is I think that since there hadn't been great King adaptations in cinema for quite some time, save like Shawshank Redemption and Green Mile, TV seemed the place. And I think the reason that Salem's Lot got remade in 2004 is 2005 was the 30th anniversary of Salem's Lot's publication. And King published a special edition of Salem's Lot that included material the editors cut. Now, it wasn't reintegrated like The Stand. I discussed that over on Books and Nachos. Salem's Lot's a hefty book. It has a lot of characters. We saw in the last miniseries, they cut it down to maybe a third the number of the characters in the book by merging stories, and it was still expansive. If you want to try to stay to King's vision, which... If you don't want King to talk badly about you in the press, that's what you got to do. Yeah. I think this has to stay longer than theaters would play. Yeah, that's probably true. And television in general is where it's at. They're kind of at the head of the curve here. But I wonder if we got another Salem's Lot, if they would make it even longer. Maybe they'd make a whole series out of it. I do feel like there's a lot here. I could definitely see an Under the Dome way or at the very least... An HBO kind of Sopranos thing where they take eight hours of it or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I do feel like having 
been familiar with the book and seen it done now a couple times. I'm wondering the next time we get it if that's not exactly how it is. But for now, if there's a point, and I'm not sure there is, Arnie, why don't you tell them what we already know? Give us the plot. I love these Stevie King retrospectives because I can cut and paste this so much. (laughs) (laughs) I used to have to write my plot summaries. Ben Mears grew up in Salem's Lot, Maine, raised by his aunt. But the town lives in the shadow of the Marsden House, a two-story building that the locals believe is haunted. Many years earlier, Ben had snuck in the house to find the owner had killed his wife and a local boy before killing himself. Ben was paralyzed with fear and lived his whole life thinking, had he been braver, he could have saved the boy. Now an adult, Ben works as an author writing tell-all nonfiction. He returns to his boyhood home to write a book on the ugly side of small-town life and perhaps face his childhood nightmare once and for all. Ben even wants to live in the Marsden house while he writes, but the house is under new ownership. Richard Straker and his business partner Kurt Barlow have purchased the manse to live in when they retire, opening a small antique shop in the town. So Ben is forced to stay in a local boarding house and he dates local waitress Susan, who Ben had emailed in the past. But soon trouble starts. A local boy disappears and several residents die from a mysterious anemia. Ben's old English teacher, Matt Burke, takes a sick townie home for rest, and in the morning, the man is dead. But that night, the dead man returns as a vampire, wanting to feed on Matt. That's right, Barlow is a vampire. You should know this. It's the third podcast we've mentioned it. And he's come to town not to suck the residents' money but their blood. Straker is not a vampire, but rather Barlow's human servant who can do the master's bidding in daylight. Every time a vampire feeds, a new vampire is created, so the vampirism spreads like a plague through the town. Local teen Mark Petrie, a friend of one of the dead boys, goes to the Barlow house to confront the vampire, and there he meets Susan, who's also investigating the two newcomers. But both are captured by Straker. Mark escapes, killing Straker in the process, but Susan is in the basement with Barlow, and Mark decides to flee rather than face the vampire. Mears, Burke, local Dr. Cody, and Father Callahan are the only adults who believe in the vampires enough to stand up to them, but Callahan is forced to sacrifice himself to protect Mark, and he's forced to drink Barlow's blood, becoming his new servant. So Callahan goes to the hospital where Matt is after having a heart attack, and Callahan stabs the teacher through the chest. Ben, Mark, and Dr. Cody then go on the hunt for Barlow's resting place, which isn't in the Marsden house. They eventually realize it's in the basement of the boarding house where Ben was staying all along, so they pull out the coffin. Barlow tries to play head games with Ben, saying that Ben is the true vampire, because he feeds off those he writes about for his book sales. But Ben realizes this is some trite crap the writers never should have put in the screenplay and stakes the vampire. <laughs> then, in another plot point I'm sure we're going to talk about, Susan shows up and says, The boy was dead all along, Ben. There's nothing you could have done. So Ben stakes her too. <laughs> ben and Mark set fire to the town, leaving most of the vampires to burn. But Callahan escapes to Detroit! Ben and Mark pursue, and Mark attacks Callahan. Both are taken to the hospital with wounds where Ben tells his story to a hospital employee, while Mark secretly sneaks in and suffocates Callahan with a pillow. Mark tells Ben the job is done, and Ben dies. 
We get a long upward shot of what I think is the point of view of Ben's spirit leaving his body as credits roll. Yes, subtle differences, important ones, but largely the same story. I don't know. Up front, how big a change do you guys think this is from Toby Hooper? Obviously, does not in any way resemble the movie reviewed last week, A Return to Salem's Lot. That is its own creation. But I gotta say, I did get a lot of deja vu, and even though we're in a new decade and, you know, new production values, by and large, to me, this felt pretty faithful to both the book and the previous version. If I have to summarize it, how I felt with that Tony Hooper one, uh, more characters, less horror. I was kind of surprised by that as we get into it. But yeah, they expanded those characters. You guys said in that original Salem's Lot that Crockett and all those different characters, they really combined a lot of different ones to pair the community down to those few that we saw here. They've expanded it. There's a whole lot more going on here. Yeah. My feeling on it is it's very strange, but because I focused so much on the book because of books and nachos, I was impressed with how much Toby Hooper's story kept with that novel, but streamlined certain elements. And here, I'll agree, it is the same number of degrees of separation away from King's book, but it goes in a different direction. They consolidate characters differently or put minor twists on it. It feels very much like a remake through and through. There's so much that is the same, and it's all because they're both really close to that source material. I think thematically they focus it more here. That last one, you know, he's this writer, but, you know, why is he really returning? We had a lot of questions about motivations here. I think they pin down the characters, at least mirrors. They pin them down a bit more. I don't know if it's as satisfying. We'll talk about it, but I feel there's more focus in the characters now. Yeah, you know, I feel of all the changes, the biggest one comes right up front. I don't know where the hell I am with the frame story. That is, I think, a good idea. With a story that is so familiar to fans of Stephen King, why not throw them for a loop by setting it in Detroit? I mean, I really didn't know what the hell was going on when we have Callahan giving out Thanksgiving meals and Rob Lowe is the villain. Rob Lowe is trying to kill the priest. This was very interesting to me because Father Callahan, if you listen to my books and nachos, in the book as it was published, Father Callahan's story does not end satisfyingly. He is defeated by Barlow when they do that faith versus faith, and instead of dying a noble death or instead of becoming Barlow's servant, as we've seen in both TV adaptations, he goes to Detroit, he flees. He gets on the first bus to get the hell out of town. And that is the end of Father Callahan for many decades. And it is a very strange ending for a character For the longest time, King had teased in interviews doing a sequel to Salem's Lot that would explain what the hell happened with Father Callahan. And it turns out, spoiler alert, Father Callahan comes back up in Stephen King's major opus, The Dark Tower series. And The Dark Tower series is weird because Stephen King is in it as a character. What? Are you talking about The Gunslinger? Yeah, that whole series. I only read one of those, but I thought it was a, a Western. It becomes something far more and far weirder. And Randall Flagg from The Stand is the major bad guy. I cannot wait until I'm 52 when discussing that <laughs> on Books and Nachos. <laughs> yeah, I tried to read the comic adaptation of that. And yeah, strange stuff there. But that is where Father Callahan's story continues in the King universe 
So here, this movie is immediately saying, screw it, this character needs a definitive ending, and so we're going to start with that, which is, yeah, perhaps the most radical change to the entire story of Kings. Okay, I didn't know anything about that. I didn't know that this was a character that had a life beyond Salem's Lot. I didn't even know if he was a character, honestly. When you look at the first Toby Hooper thing, other than that one great scene of him versus Barlow, I didn't notice the priest. He just wasn't a character that stood out to me. Here, by casting James Cromwell, Oscar-nominated, a character actor we've seen and covered in other films, I'm paying attention. And the fact that he's still alive, obviously this is after whatever happened in Salem's Lot, that he's going to be a survivor. All of this is intriguing. It's having me interested in a story that I thought I knew and was afraid that it was going to be overly familiar. The interesting thing is when you get to those Dark Tower books, Callahan works in a food line in Detroit and throws himself out a window when he's attacked by AIDS-carrying vampires. You know, this opening to me just seemed like an updated from the Toby Hooper one. There we started, I think, in Mexico, and we know we got two characters looking for vampires here. We get the action a bit quicker. We get Rob Lowe, who I go into the spoiler-free when I hadn't seen him, So, but I'm figuring, okay, this is going to be Ben Mears. And, and James Cromwell, I, whenever I see him, doesn't he always play the person that's, like, good, and then the third act... You find out he's really the bad guy. That's how I always remember him. So not in Babe or in Star <laughs> Trek and Spider-Man three, Captain Stacy. I was surprised that it was James Cromwell. I don't think the credits had rolled yet when we see him. And I knew Rob Lowe was in this, even though on the DVD cover, he looks like Lou Diamond Phillips. It's actually Rob Lowe. <laughs> and I see him attack a priest and I'm like, shit, is that James Cromwell? <laughs> And I'm wondering, is it a cameo or a job? And it is a job. He is in more of this movie than just this opening. And I like that. Another thing that it does is it lets you know right from the get-go that religion, the religious themes. You know, I asked, Jerusalem's Lot, does this have biblical connotations? What does this have to do by naming the town as such? Here, after they fall out the window, we have an orderly who defines himself as a Christian and demands from Rob Lowe, the man that he believes wrongly attacked this priest, why he should let him live. This is what motivates the telling of this story. It frames it in a way in which we're seeing it through a Christian's eyes, through a religious perspective. I'm thinking that this version is going to have a tighter focus on themes of that nature. And I get that, that it's probably going to have a tighter focus. It's definitely heavy-handed how it's going about it. I don't know. None of this dialogue seems natural to me, that you get this orderly. Even if you're a nurse, don't you have to take the <laughs> Hippocratic Oath? <laughs> Even if you're not a Christian, you got to help that person? It's not very Christian to say, I'm not going to help you. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, so apart from that, it's also illegal. Yes, if you're practicing medicine, you're not allowed to let your bias influence the practice here. But it's just so that we have the right perspective as we look and go back to a story that becomes very quickly very familiar. And it's following the structure, if not the points, of King's novel. King's original novel was told in retrospect as Mirrors had left the town in flames and then was thinking back on the events that took place and starts with him rolling into town. And we do the same thing here. And yeah, in our lead role, we've talked more about James Cromwell than we have Rob Lowe. But Rob Lowe at 2004, you know, he was kind of at a second peak of his career. He had that time in the 80s with St. Elmo's Fire and all that. There's the Brat Pack years cut short by his sex tape back then. It was a scandal. It was a scandal back then. Now it would be a necessity. Yeah, but... you'd high five him, right, for having a three-way <laughs> on video. 
Tommy Lee, we know who he is now, instead of the nameless drummer of Motley Crue because of the sex tape. But yeah, in the 80s, that damns you to being the villain in Wayne's world. (laughs) True enough. I hadn't seen him really since then, but he did go on. You're right. He did have this career on television in the West Wing. I never saw an episode with him in it. Oh, he was great in it. And I stopped watching when he left the show. I mean, I was a West Wing follower because of him in it. And he left it to do this and other TV shows. I feel like he disappeared again quickly, very quickly. He was gone. This might have been the last time I've heard of him since discussing him today. No, no. He's back with Parks and Recs. He's back on NBC Thursday nights, in fact. Yeah. Okay. I guess I just don't keep up with Rob Lowe and shame on me. But he always (laughs) seemed to me like the yuppie scum you'd get if you couldn't get James Spader. There's just something about him. To me, he's just kind of yuppie scum, American psycho. I think of him as a man that has a lot of money and not much to like. And that's because you're thinking about his 80s roles, which is when you paid attention to him. And you're not thinking about what truly was his career comeback, which is thanks to Stephen King... The Stand. The Stand brought back him and fellow brat packer Molly Ringwald, and he was a pariah when The Stand came out in 94. I remember reading Entertainment Weekly articles discussing, oh my god, what are they doing putting Rob Lowe in this? And then laughing at him, saying they've cast him as a mute, could you think of a better role for Rob Lowe? Yeah, I don't think he had ever proven himself as a dramatic actor. I remember a very unfortunate movie where he went full retard. Something about (laughs) Square Dance or something. I can't remember even the name of it. I'm not going to look it up because I don't want to look back. But he did a few parts where he tried to show I'm an actor and not a movie star. It had blown up in his face. He had no credibility as anything other than a star of the 80s. Until, you're right, the stand probably paved the way for a very successful TV career. Yeah, it's the stand that started the dominoes falling that led to the West Wing. And so when you're looking to cast another Stephen King miniseries and Rob Lowe suddenly becomes available because he quit his day job, he has to seem like an attractive get. We're going to see a lot of repeat King actors as we go through the Stephen King retrospective series. And Rob Lowe definitely is our first when we hit him again in the stand. But here's his second time being a starring role in a King miniseries. So to me, he makes sense. That makes so much more sense. I was just judging him as the basis of a writer. I mean, Arnie, I remember that was an issue for you. We all agree David Soul had no soul, had no essence of being literary, really. He was just a star of television of the moment that they could get in 1979. Rob Lowe as a writer, well, they have changed it. He's not a novelist, right? He is a war reporter. He's a journalist in this conception. It's kind of weird. He writes books still. He's not, like, writing for the AP. But the books he writes, he's like an embedded person in Afghanistan who then writes shit about the people who save his life and gets them in trouble. It's a very muddied thing. I don't know why they felt they had to change this from him being a novelist, but they do try to make him a little bit more of a despicable writer, whereas in the previous versions, the townies just kind of looked down upon his writing without knowing a lot about it. 
I like it actually because I think that what they're setting up here is, is he trustworthy? Would you trust him with your secrets? He's here to write about the town. If he had written about the people that saved his life in Afghanistan and it ended up getting three soldiers court-martialed, you wouldn't exactly get your tongue wagging with him. I mean, I think that that's the problems the townspeople see in him coming to town. Yeah, his teacher will call him out. You're antagonistic, lack of emotion, and lack of moral center. And I think nothing makes him more untrustworthy than when you find out that he, what, rats out the soldiers that saved him. He was a hostage in Afghanistan, and then he witnessed these soldiers take out some civilians and writes a bestseller about it and gets them all court-martialed. I mean, they really do set up a character here that not just does this town trust him, but can we trust him? I do. I actually, I don't judge him for that. Maybe I should, but I think of him as having done his job. It would have been one thing, particularly 2004, we want to send patriotic messages to say, wow, these people saved me from the Taliban, for him to go the extra step and say what it cost civilians around us was extreme. I mean, I think that that shows a nuance of story that wouldn't have been popular certainly with small-town America, but would have been more encompassing. I mean, what they're diving into, 2004, is the thorniness of the whole Iraq war. And, of course, that was the contentious debate. It's why they changed this character. It makes him feel very contemporary and gives him a very real-world problem here. I like the setup. I don't know if I like Rob Lowe in this part, but I like the way that this part has been reconfigured. I think he has a bigger problem in that we find out about halfway through this that the reason he came back to town is because he's gone from reporting on the Afghanistan war to write a true-to-life Peyton place. Well, what is he writing here? I mean, it's under the pretext. What he's telling everyone is he is writing about his earliest childhood horror. That, you know, if he's a man that's experienced real-life horror, the first violence he ever saw was at this Marsden house. And we learn a lot more about it this time. I'm happy to say I actually understand the way they've configured it, whereas back in the Toby Hooper, it was kind of nebulous. This time, it feels like it's about the owner of the house specifically, and not that the house is always attracting new evil to it. They've de-emphasized the role of the haunted house. Yeah, they've dropped all that. We don't get all this talk about, can a house be evil? Are the timbers in it evil? Now it's really reframed is, is this house a place where evil things happen? Or is that a reflection of our town? I really feel like that's the debate going on here. Did this horrible thing happen in this house because these townspeople are evil? And we had that debate with the original Salem's Lot is, you know, did vampires descend on it because there needed to be some kind of retribution for these uh, adulterers and these townspeople that aren't very good. So I feel like they've taken that and again, focused it here. It's a better debate than, you know, trying to fit this weird Shining-esque talk about a evil haunted house. But no, now that house is a reflection of the town. It is a mirror. They call that out later on in the film. That said, I'm not sure that I like this backstory as much that when Ben snuck into the house as a kid under the peer pressure of his friends and some of the stuff King would write, you're not a dread pirate, are you? It never works well when delivered. (laughs) I got a question. There's a lot of pros. We get a lot of mirrors pros in this. Is this from the book? Because, man, it's not very good. Most of the monologues are written by the writer of the show. Some, though, are lifted directly from the prose. Now, King doesn't do any voiceovers or first-person narration. 
But the very opening where he goes, no one pronounced Jerusalem's lot dead on the morning of October 6th, that is straight from King. A few other lines are taken from King, but some of the absolute worst, like, what were you hoping to find here? That's not from the book. So King didn't describe the African-Americans in the town as a smattering of pepper compared to most of the (laughs) Irish people that live there? Actually, Jacob, yeah, that line is straight from King's book. I don't know. There's a lot of the pros here that just I could have done without the voiceover. You know, I'll say this much. I feel like the screenwriter did a pretty good approximate. I didn't feel like there were any monologues or voiceover that wouldn't feel like they wouldn't fit into a Stephen King monologue. I think that he nailed a consistent tone, whether these come from him or the original text. Well, it might sound like it comes from King. It doesn't sound to me like it comes from a war journalist, as (laughs) Rob Lowe is portraying here. You might have a point there. But he breaks into that house that night, and it just happens to be the night that Hubie Marsden did his murders. So now instead of breaking into the haunted house, like the one from Halloween, they're breaking into a house where people live? (laughs) We get these flashbacks through the entire film. I guess we could talk about them right now. He witnesses Marsden like he's hiding in a closet and Marsden at one point is like looking up. I didn't know if he was talking to some evil vampire gods or something evil as these murders are going on. Is that what we're supposed to believe or is he just a crazy guy and he's, you know, maybe schizophrenic and hearing voices? Here's the thing. When I read the book, when I saw Toby Hooper, I thought that this was always a house that had a bloody history, the man that built the walls, killed his family, then somebody that was a serial killer they never proved, but abducted children and killed them there, and now it's brought vampires. It was a successive series of bad men attracted to the house because the house was the center of evil. Now I think all the evil is Barlow. To me, it's always the vampire. That vampire wants to get to the house, but can only be there in some kind of phantom state and is making this man abduct children and kill them. He's had a correspondence. We'll actually learn that Marsden at this point is in Marseille, he's in France, and that the French girl has been writing in Hubie's name to him. So I just think that all of this, every single death, everything bad that happens here, it's all Barlow. At least that's the way I take it here in TNT land. And if you go back to King's original novel, the letter writing bit, it's a little bit different. There wasn't some little girl who translated to French, but Barlow was being written to by Marsden. Marsden, you know, they still do the thing in the book of is the house evil, what's attracting it. But yet King does include a throwaway bit that Marsden was a mobster, a hitman, killing kids and into the occult, and so he somehow found a vampire and started writing letters to him and said, hey, come to town, come visit sometime. Here, because of the letter writing, it could be taken that Barlow's there, but we also know Barlow has to travel by giant crate. So (laughs) it could just be demonic force or craziness from being satanic. I don't know. For me, it centralizes the evil. It takes it out of the range of a house and puts it on a figure that has yet to make it in the doorway yet. I do not know why Barlow wants to move to Salem's Lot. Doesn't seem like a lot is going on. If you wanted to feed on people, if you wanted to see evil, go to New York. Strangely, King's entire plot for Salem's Lot was what would happen if Dracula came to New York? 
And his answer was he'd be hit by a cab and killed. <laughs> so if you think about it, Dracula didn't live in a big city. And when he tried to move to a big city, he didn't succeed. So he would stay in small towns where he could stay under the radar and thrive. Yeah, I feel like there's still similar problems that we had with Hooper's Salem's Lot. Why does Barlow come here? Why would Dracula come here? Maybe that's answered better in the book, but I feel like a lot of the missed opportunities with that film that could have strengthened it, they aren't quite tackled the way I would have expected them to be tackled here and explained better. Of the three times the story is told, it is told most explicitly here, thanks to that lady who wrote the letters in French. In King's book, it's literally one sentence about writing letters. Here, it's dragged out that Marsden was corresponding with Barlow. So that is how Barlow came here. I don't think you need more than that. It's a little coincidental in all the tellings that Ben and Barlow come to town at the same time. But the plot is a vampire comes here, not that there's a reason for the vampire to come there. Yeah, all right, but here's a slight problem with all of this. He's already been invited, and this is a whole thing that I forgot. When we covered Fright Night, I was like, did they invent this, that you have to be invited in the house? No, I just forgot my vampire trivia. This has always been a thing. It was true in Dracula. Someone has to invite you to come there before they can enter your home. You have to embrace the evil for them to threaten you. Otherwise, you're fine. Marsden has done this. He has made that house a place where Barlow can go. So why do we need the real estate agent? Why do they need to do this whole jazz about how he has to invite him and get land and all of this? I feel like they wanted to create an evil landowner. A landlord is a good target for a villain. There was a recession going on. And a housing crisis. Not quite yet. About three years short of it. But people were you know, maybe starting to feel that. I think it's a perennial. I think landlords can always be seen as villains, but I just feel like here's a character you don't need anymore. Whereas I felt like he served a lot of the point of it in Toby Hooper's this landowner, other than the bad toupee, I barely pay attention to him. Yeah, Crockett, he made some deal where he didn't sell them the house because they Barlow had to technically be invited into the Marston house, or I almost took it like he had to be invited into Salem's lot, like he couldn't just wander into a town. They were extending that vampire lore, which, I don't know, Straker's not a vampire, so he could buy the house and invite whoever he wants into it. It seems convoluted to me. Well, normally you have to be invited by an occupant of the house. You couldn't just have your minion walk in and then go, come on in. Well, let Straker buy the house. Then he is an occupant. (laughs) True. I wonder if they would have done themselves a favor by actually having Hubie not be a flashback, but be something in the present. I know that they want to have this past history with Ben, and, and I get that to a degree, but I almost feel like if they had just made it that Hubie invited the evil, this story could have gotten in faster, and we could have tied what he did and the disappearing children with what's happened now. Well, let's talk about Larry Crockett here, because... In the last movie, he was played by Fred Willard, which drew a lot of our attention. Here, he's played by somebody who I don't know from anything. Aussies. Yeah. Aussies. This whole thing was shot in Australia. Most of the cast, aside from a few TV actors from America, are all Australians. Yeah, there actually is people from Man-Thing in this. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I noticed that. The Doctor, yes. But... He was the one who did sell the Marsden house in the book, and he has his own little 
evil subplots. He's part of the town's nastiness. He's the richest person in the town. They talk about that a little bit in the last one about the way he does his dealings. But here, they really go out of their way to make him and the rest of the town even more evil and nasty than in Hooper's or King's vision. I mean, here, not only is he the second inviter of the vampires. He's also molesting his teenage daughter. Yes. That was a surprise. Not in the book, right? I could not remember this detail. No, not in the book. And yet I don't feel like King wouldn't use it. I feel like in some ways it was just something that didn't occur to him, but not something he would object to. He didn't get there yet. Crockett's not just a real estate guy. I think they drop a line that he's ahead of some corporation. I mean, he's writing rent-due eviction notices onto people's trailers. $10,000 for a trailer? Couldn't you buy one for that? <laughs> How do you get $10,000 behind on your trailer? Wow. But yeah, that's one of the people is having to extort $10,000 in order to stay in their home. Yeah, and I mean, it's put out in the book that the way he made his money in real estate was starting with trailer homes. So I took that as a tie back to this. Plus, they had a trailer home set and one camera set up. There's like five different scenes all filmed from the same like crane shot at that same trailer. I guess he was evicting Sandy and Royce, who we'll talk about later. But here, yeah, in this movie, they really go out of the way to bring crockett more to the fore i'll tell you though they give crockett a satisfying ending here in the end his daughter gets turned into a vampire and he wants her to turn him so he can still be with her and instead she lets every vampire but her eat him not turn him but just rip the flesh off his bones yeah i was confused i'm like did this turn into a zombie movie because it's like we won't drink your blood but we'll eat your flesh and then it goes into zombie mode the way they tear him apart i think that's just to give this character a satisfying ending in king's original book this guy is the one who sells them the marsden house and like in these he hires the workers who bring barlow to the house and all of that he's like the minions minion in this so you expect him to get this really nasty death and it's just mentioned in passing he's turned into a vampire but here it does flesh this character out more and like father callahan gives him a more satisfying ending. So if you just read the copy of the book, these were the two characters who you go, what the fuck? And now in this miniseries, they're given their just desserts. And I'm going to say that right up the top here. I think that this miniseries does a much better job of constructing complete character arcs for its ensemble than Toby Hooper's. Toby Hooper's ultimately, I felt like, was the star vehicle for Ben and his surrogate kid that he sort of adopts. And the rest of them were just flavoring that came in and out of it and didn't have much real importance other than just being a town of victims. Here, I definitely can see that this feels like the town has a soul. And I feel like, you know, it's described that the house overlooks it and it's going to die. But is it going to heaven or is it going to hell? You know, like some of these townspeople are evil. Some of these townspeople are good. And some of them are trapped in the middle. And all their stories are important because ultimately the sum and subtraction of who they are as people are going to characterize this town. There's more people here. Are they developed better? Yes. Are you more engaged with them, though? I, I'm approaching this as a vampire film, and I, I don't know if I'm getting that. As this film goes on, yeah, we're going to get vampires. We're going to get people getting bitten. 
I just don't know if I ever feel that creepy atmosphere that I did before. I don't think I'm any more engaged with these people. There's more of them this time, which makes it even harder to keep track of all the blackmailing schemes and land deals and, and all that going on. Again, better development, but it doesn't feel any more streamlined to me. And I don't know. I'm not approaching a Stephen King film caring about this town drama as much as waiting for a vampire outbreak. But I think one of the things this miniseries does better is its pacing of the vampire story. Yes, we have a lot of characters here, and we do spend, I'd say, the first half hour or so getting our introduction. But within the first half hour of this, we're already being introduced to Straker and Donald Sutherland and giving this creepy, creepy performance that I, I love Donald Sutherland in this. He is hysterical in this. I love the fact that when they do the rap, sheet on him. The cop is suspicious of a lot of people. Ben, Kurt Barlow, the evil bus driver. But when they come to Sutherland, they're like, he was kicked out of America for selling ecstasy in 1966. You know what? I could believe that. Look at Donald <laughs> Sutherland. He looks like that dude. He looks like he did too much acid here and is now selling antiques. But wouldn't mind taking him in the back room to his meth lab if you so choose. I do feel like he's kooky. He's not creepy, but he's kooky. And I think that's okay for a sub-villain. He's not the head guy. He's not Barlow, but he does have a kooky, quirky energy here that I think fits. Let me tell you what's inspired, inspired casting. You have Donald Sutherland as the human lackey, and who do you have as the vampire? Rucker Hauer. Now, I may be the only Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan on this podcast, but the fans who are listening remember the original Buffy the Vampire movie with Kirsty Swanson, had Rutger Hauer as the vampire and Donald Sutherland as Buffy's trainer, the Watcher. Oh, wow. I didn't put that together, but I did see that movie. I never watched the show, but I did see that movie. You're right. And I'm a Buffy virgin, so I haven't seen any of that. So, news to me. Yeah. So I'm just reveling in these two reuniting in another vampire tale, this one in a post-Buffy world after Joss Whedon went to TV and redefined the vampire genre. Could be you're onto something, but I don't know. Rutger Hauer will always be Roy Batty to me, and I do think he gets to play off his Blade Runner persona here, you know. He does get to be this sort of superhuman creation that makes Faustian deals and speaks poetry, really, towards the end. When he converts the priest, I think it's very similar to the way Roy confronts his creator in Blade Runner. I think that it's just a Rutger Hauer part. It's fun. I don't see enough Rutger Hauer, quite frankly. I think of him as mostly having his career built on Blade Runner. Here, I think it was wise to cast him as Barlow. If you're not going to go with prosthetics and makeups and doing what they did with Toby Hooper... Go with someone who had a lot of plastic surgery. <laughs> oh, he looks pretty good here. I don't know. I bought it. I just didn't get enough of him here. Waiting so long for the master. And to me, with Hooper, it's worth that reveal because I really dug that version of the master. Here, he's just a normal dude. Yes, it's Rucker Hauer, but... Why couldn't I get to that sooner? Why did I have to wait so long? Yeah, we see him in the shadows. He is making deals with Dud. He's going to straighten his crooked spine out. But we don't really get to see him perform until the end. And it's just too little too late for me by that point. But we have action coming before that because it's only... 25 minutes into this movie when the boy gets abducted, whereas in the last one, it was 50 minutes in. I don't know. It's more like over an hour before we actually see Fangs. I mean, I don't think we actually see a vampire bare his teeth until Dud has been changed 
and turns Floyd into one of them. I mean, it's really late. If you're here for vampires, I'm going to just put it this way. When I watched the Toby Hooper movie from 1979, I thought that it ultimately was a little too pokey, a little too slow, but I really liked the scary parts. Here, I think it's inversed. I actually think the pokey stuff is the good stuff, the drama. Come for the drama, but this vampire nonsense, these scenes don't work for me. I mean, this Glick Boy stuff was the stuff that terrified me as a child. If I watched this TNT movie at the age that I saw the Toby Hooper movie, I would not be haunted by what happens to Ralphie and Danny Glick. Even, you know, some of the cheesier parts of that 70s thing, which is probably normal then, where they kind of go in for the bite and freeze frame, they almost replicate that a few times here, where they don't even commit to doing the bites here. So you take away that atmosphere for the horror elements that Hooper brought in, and you still don't go full force like you could with a cable movie these days, where go in for that bloody bite. It freezes again. The horror here, I, I don't know. I don't see a lot of horror. I think... The creepiest scene is towards the end when you see some kids inside of a school bus climbing on the roof, but that's it. That was the scare of this movie. I love the school bus scare with the kids, but the rest of it, I kept thinking Roadrunner. They just kind of beep beep and zip in and zip out. That's not scary. It's hard for me to find anything on television scary. It can happen. It's really rare. Here, though... I like the atmosphere. You guys talked about Rucker Hauer and the Blade Runner connection. I like his speeches. I like his intensity. I like the other vampires. I like their look. I like it when Mike, the local townie, comes back to Matt, the teacher's house, and reveals himself. I like that they replayed that scene from Hooper's with the tapping on the window. I'm enjoying... The vampire side of this actually more than the human drama side because the human drama side to me has become the human melodrama side. Now they've added a romance subplot between the boarding housekeeper and the town drunk. It was there in the first one. It just wasn't important. Here it actually has a finale. I mean, in the same amount of time, they're able to tell us much more who these people are. I liked it. Stuart, you're right. The best part of this TV film is the drama stuff, the town stuff. But Arnie, you're right too. It is melodrama. It's not as engaging. It's better than the horror, but it's still, in the end, kind of mediocre to me. Better than Hooper did, but still not strong enough to carry this film without those great horror elements. I'll tell you the character who I feel got the shittiest treatment in this one, and that's Susan. Because if you look at King's book... Susan is supposed to be somebody who you're truly, truly upset for Ben when she's killed. Here, I'm excited because Susan's played by Samantha Mathis, who we've talked about before on this show. I always go back to pump up the volume when I think of her, but we saw her in The Punisher. Yeah, that was a great part. Love her! Big fan. Are you kidding me? The (laughs) one that got executed in the beginning in the Hawaii or whatever it was? (laughs) She also would be in King's Under the Dome TV series, but I'm excited because she's in this part. And they take her, and they actually remove her as a love interest. They date a couple times, then she finds out he's writing a book about the town and thinks he's a dick. They break up, and so when she turns, who cares? No, I disagree. I like that. I think it actually helps the story that she represents the town. You know, at first she's seduced by the famous guy that's come back to his roots. And then when she finds out that he wants to pin a tell-all about the root of evil, and that means them. Yeah, I think that 
that's good. Before they wrote it off like, I have a job interview in Boston, and so that's why she disappears from the movie. Here it makes more sense that she would reject Ben, that she would not be involved. I think many of the character changes are for the better. And yet Ben stills digging her. We get to the end when he finds out she's a vampire. And he's like, right after they've killed a bunch of vampires, they're like, wait, 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 let's not kill her. Let's kill Barlow. And maybe that will change her. Like all of a sudden, because of my love for you, we're not going to slaughter a bunch of vampires. We're going to go for that Ed one now. Oh, God, I hate her ending. I hate, hate, hate her ending. I hate that they bring her back as a vampire, not as well as they did in Hooper's when it is painful for him to kill her, but they bring her back almost like an angel from beyond to absolve Ben from his guilt in a (laughs) stupid fucking speech. And then despite all of that, he stakes her with no thought because she turns and like after being like Melinda, the good witch absolving him (laughs) from his guilt. When Mark Petrie shows up behind her, she's like food. It makes no sense. It's stupid. I have a lot of problems with the real end of this movie. Hers is the second one of just eye-rolling. I honestly, from being most excited about this actress in this role, I went to this is my least favorite character in this movie. On that, we agree. I didn't like Susan beforehand, and I put some of that on Samantha Mathis. But yeah, when she shows up with that crimped hair and (laughs) basically makes it so easy for Rob Lowe to not feel guilty anymore. I mean, what we understand about the Marston house is not only is it the root of the vampire evil, not only was it the place where he was invited in and started poisoning the town, but Ben has a role here that as a witness, he saw a child in a tub Children had been abducted. Maybe he was still alive, but he curled into a fetal position rather than running for help. And he spent all of these years hearing that child scream in his head. This woman, who was not there, would have no knowledge of it, is just going to magically come in and say, oh, that was all in your imagination. And he had a crust larynx. I mean, yeah, dreadful. A dreadful, dreadful scene that should have been completely cut. I would have preferred that they staked her earlier than having her come back to do this. Yeah, just utterly awful so she is perhaps the worst i'll agree with you that some of the other characters yes i've already mentioned with cromwell and crockett that they had arcs in this one whereas even in the book they were left wanting and you're right when you point out that the old boarding house lady and her drunk lover they also have a resolution and even dud and ruthie crockett have a resolution whereas in the book it's in passing, it does become more fulfilled arcs, but yet everything is taken a little bit more extreme. Everything's taken a little bit more Melrose Place. And for that reason, I find myself having trouble getting behind any of these stories with one exception. My favorite story, because they played me in this whole thing, is about Dr. James Cody, who's the local town doctor who becomes one of the vampire hunters. And he ends up in a relationship with Sandy McDougal. Now, in the book, Sandy McDougal is a child abuser. She wasn't here? She's not. They call that out early on, and so I I just took it that she was covering up for herself. It's her husband in this one. Okay, well, that's what I assume. She was covering up for herself or someone else. See, and I thought she was covering up for herself and seducing the doctor because she was beating the baby. Because in the book, she was beating the baby. Here, 
Royce McDougal is a real son of a bitch. He is the child abuser because we hear him beat her and the baby later on. But more than that, they've teamed up to whore her out to the doctor. She'll sleep with him, arrange to be caught by her husband, and the husband will then put a gun in the doctor's face and blackmail him for ten grand. And if he doesn't pay up, turn him into the board for sleeping with a patient. When it's revealed that Sandy was in on that all along. I was as played as the doctor. Oh, I assume that's what was going on. I guess I have an evil heart. I figured it's all a scheme to make 10,000 bucks. We saw a similar thing, though, in the last one where the lover is caught and the husband comes in with a gun. Seeing it in Hooper's version, seeing it in King's, I think it was just my expectation of seeing what had come before that played me perhaps even more than the story itself. And you know, I think the Doctor is one of the few characters here who is in the gray area. To me, I'm watching a miniseries about a town that's got to prove itself as it dies. Is it a good place or is it a harbinger of evil? And I'm never quite sure about him. On one hand, he's committing adultery. He's kind of a prick. But then he's concerned about this baby. And, you know, he's trying to find the money. And I don't know. I never knew exactly how to feel about him for much of the movie until he does sort of become one of the vampire hunters there at the end. And I do like him. I got to say, his death was the most gruesome of the entire movie. Like, when he enters the lair and the stairs collapse and he falls on the power saw, I literally yelled out loud. I was like, oh, I just didn't see it coming. And I'd forgotten. There's a similar death for that character in the book, and I'd completely forgotten. And it's, in one way, a bitch way to die, right? He falls for a booby trap and is killed and taken out of the fight completely, leaving Ben on his own. But on the other hand, it is so bloody, so visceral, and so painful looking that it is a hard way to go. I think it's worse than what Toby Hooper imagined. I mean, Hooper had the guy impaled on antlers, a wall of antlers, but this looked even worse. I don't know. Both bad. We can agree that neither is what you'd want to do. Yes, being impaled is typically bad on anything. But yeah, I kind of liked him by the end. I think he does redeem himself. But, you know, the teacher has been saying this town is mostly good. And I keep going back to that. I'm adding up these characters as I'm meeting them and going, well, are they? Because some of them are clearly jerks. Yeah, a guy that's going to beat up his infant and his wife and extort money, clearly bad. The man that's molesting his daughter and exploiting the poverty of the town for his own fortune, clearly bad. I don't know. Do you get the sense about whether this is a good place or bad place, Salem Slot? Is this... A town worth saving? I have always felt, and we had this conversation in the first one, that Salem's Lot was your average small town, and there are good people and there are bad people. In this one, where they're actually, yes, framing it as putting the town on trial, I think they do a disservice by focusing on all the bad stories, because those are the interesting ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where are the good stories here? You you get this english teacher i guess he's good and the doctor does go hunt vampires in the end but i I don't feel there's a balanced case here this is as skewed as perhaps ben's book about these troops in afghanistan you know sensationalize it so you can make the money i don't think we get a balanced view of this town to really make that decision it's proposed hey is this town evil but it doesn't really give us that vision to make that decision i feel like some of the characters have the asshole knob turned down Like Floyd Tibbetts, you know, was the evil plumber ex-boyfriend of Susan and so clearly a villain beating up Ben 
in the Toby Hooper version. Here, he just feels like someone that has been displaced. I mean, I, I can understand what he's heartbroken. And how can he compete with a successful writer? I mean, how can he compete with Rob Lowe? I feel like less of an asshole. I feel like the sheriff is less of an asshole in this one. I don't judge some of the characters as harshly. I don't feel like they're as broadly drawn as they were in the Toby Hooper movie. But yet, they're still assholes. The constable still just takes off and says, fuck it, I'm going to let this town die rather than risk my own ass. No, no, no. That's who he was in Toby Hooper. Here, he makes it clear. I could handle this if I were going to die. What I can't risk is being turned into an undead. I actually think that it's a much more sympathetic portrayal. The first time it felt like someone who shouldn't have had a badge, this time I understood. His family was in Florida. He he was seeking a home for himself. I don't know. I just to me I did not have the same impression of him at all. I mean the town in Hooper's film seemed more satirical. This is a take on small town communities where they're supposed to have this pure image, but everyone's sleeping with each other and running around kind of being bad. Here, it's just so much more melodramatic, and I think that's the problem for me. If you're going to go for this melodrama and propose this as a town on trial, are they evil? Well, let's really see the good in this town. You know, early on, yeah, we see the town turn out to look for the Glick boy that went missing in the woods, but so much of the focus is the melodrama that that's your impression of Salem's lot yeah the only victimless story we get is the woman marrying the drunk and the crime she committed is making him wait too long but all of the townie stories we get are pretty much about bad people doing bad things even ruthie crockett who is the molestation victim is herself manipulating dud by pretending she's interested in him when she would never be interested in a guy with a hunchback and a limp because she's doing it to piss her father off. We spend too much time focusing on those stories for me to believe that line. When the shit hits the fan, there are four people who stand up to the vampires, and one of them's a teenage boy. Right. I hear you. I, I like the grayness of it, though. I You're not going to hear me say anything really negative about the characterization here. I actually really like this stuff. I think it's really strong. Where I think the movie fails is in trying to craft the kinds of scares and the moments of tension that make those dramatic moments peak. I think that this is all talk and no horror. They bled dry the tension of the Salem's Lot. And that's a mistake. I got to say, as much as they've fixed the ensemble, do we really want a vampire story that has no scares? I'm diametrically opposed to you there, Stuart. I was discussing, you know, is the town sympathetic? But believe it or not, I'm enjoying this melodrama. I'm enjoying the scenes with the vampires. I'm intrigued by the suspense of what Barlow is going to be portrayed as. I mean, I read the book, I've seen the previous movie, I know the story, but I want to see this portrayal. But this melodrama, like I said, I was fooled by the McDougals. And I'm a little bit taken in by this old romance, and I'm really surprised by the one-upsmanship of the Crockett family. So, you say there's no tension, I'm finding the vampire stuff to be good, I'm finding the drama stuff to be entertaining. We started off saying, how would this be done? Could this be a series like some Stephen King stuff has been? If you really stretched this out like Under the Dome, 
I think I'd be watching every week and eating it up. Well, you are on record as being a Melrose Place fan, so melodrama, that's your thing. And I don't think you're hearing me. The melodrama is good. The vampire stuff are the moments where, like, the kid is behind the curtain saying, invite me in, and you got that really sped-up motion, and, like, that was it. That was how Danny got bit by his brother. Those scenes are not good. I liked the scene where he was in the kind of creepy looking behind the semi-translucent hospital. No, there's no. nothing unsettling about this. With the Glick boys pawing at the windows with the smoke behind. I mean, there's nothing unsettling about this hospital scene or really most of these vampire scenes. That's what I'm saying here. When I'm talking about the vampire stuff, I'm talking about the kill moments or the bite moments. Those things look silly. They move silly. They're not frightening. I don't even think the director is really into those moments. It doesn't feel that way. I don't even quite understand. Little Ralphie was killed before he was bitten. And then he was beheaded or something. How did he even get turned into a vampire? They stuffed him under ice, and I thought that was Straker doing that. It was, I believe, Straker doing that. They mentioned the boy's head thing. But later, we see Mike Ryerson come back as a vampire who's clearly been autopsied and sewn back together. So perhaps if you turn someone into a vampire, you can stitch the head back on? Why did Straker take the head off in the first place then? Straker can't make them a vampire because he isn't a vampire. Barlow's coffin is still being delivered simultaneously to Ralphie's murder. So in compressing the timeline, they have a problem here. I don't buy it. They knew they needed to get a kill in there in the first half hour, but it doesn't make sense that Ralphie would be a vampire now. You know, the writers of the screenplay really kind of fucked something up. Because in King's book... That first boy dying was a sacrifice to Satan. It was not a vampiric death. It was a murder done by Straker. Here, they decide to take that and mix it with a vampirism, and it creates this whole, how do you take a beheaded boy and turn him into a vampire thing? How do you? Why do they need to behead him at all? I think you need to stick with the vampire thing. I wasn't thinking Satanists. I was thinking vampires. I think that to behead him is the wrong impulse here. They should have been able to write it that this kid was attacked the night that Barlow arrived. Yeah, his brother was the first victim of Barlow in the book. But, yeah, I mean, they talk about consecrated ground and how the ground is no longer consecrated after Mm -hmm. the dog's death and things. I think they just tried to adhere too closely to the book. But they also really wanted that scene from the first movie of the boy outside the window. They wanted their blood and to drink it too, is what you're saying. Yes, to use a vampire metaphor there. It does not make sense unless Barlow was always there and only his coffin was being delivered. And that is what Hubie was seeing on the roof. Who knows? Maybe. Pretty lame, though. If it was just literally bring me my bed. It (laughs) It was not bringing... Barlow to the house. That's pretty an undramatic development there. And I guess if he'd been living there for that long, they wouldn't really need to go through the problem of not buying it, buying it. Right. There's still problems here. I think some of this is in the source material. I don't think I'm in, in love with King's novel as you are. I actually think that this script has done a good job of cherry picking the ideas and stories and fusing it into a really good ensemble. I agree. This would make a really good TV series kind of creepy gothic i mean we have those on television right now what it is not doing is working as a horror mini series 
contained movie. And that's what I want to stress here, is that the fear factor is really down. But I am still intrigued. I am still enjoying it. I just can recognize that the vampire bites and conversions are not what they were in Toby Hooper. And what I want still is I want a 90 to 120 minute condensed version, tight storytelling, focus maybe on a couple of townies here, make a strong thesis about inherent evil in a town or a house could be a reflection of the town, something like that. Tight storytelling, some great vampire scares and kills. That's what I want. I've suffered through two, three-hour versions of this. I still haven't been won over by an expanded version. I don't want to see this in a miniseries. I want to see a tight film. Suffered? You approved the first one. (laughs) Weekly. Weekly. Weekly, yes. You can't say you suffer green arrows. Good point. I think I need to retroactively change the webpage and throw a red on there for you if you suffered. (laughs) The only storyline I truly don't get, somebody help me out here, is this invented for the movie? I don't remember a school bus driver that was a NAM vet that was really mean to the kids and made them, you know, kicked them off if they talked back or whatever here. But what is going on here with Charlie Rhodes and maybe his pornography collection and or war atrocity photographs. Charlie was a bus driver who had been in Nam and did kick kids off the bus. I don't recall there being pictures in a glove box, but he was an asshole bus driver who the kids did come back and get their revenge on. Okay, just don't even remember it from the novel, so they've clearly done it better. There are like a hundred characters in the novel, and that book, I say this in my Books and Nachos review, you can hear at booksandnachos.com, it's a reason to buy a Kindle version so you can look up these names that you haven't read about in 200 pages. So at one point, Mark tells the constable that Mark and the Glick boys, they had snuck into the bus, they had found these war atrocity photos from Vietnam, and... Mark tells the constable, oh, yeah, he shows us those pictures to freak us out. Was there any resolution? I, I don't know if I missed it. It just seems like then we don't see Charlie Rhodes until almost the end of this film where the kids are attacking him. I think we're supposed to want this kid to have some kind of revenge on him because, well, his friends got killed while they were doing this mission. He was not being picked up by the side of the road anymore. And the reason why the cops even there is because Charlie told the cops that Mark was dealing pot, so it was a a war going on between these two. Well, Mark Petrie, he's the last one we haven't talked about. Another actor I'm really excited to see, Dan Bird. I know him because it's got a shitty title. I know it has a shitty title, and anyone who's never watched this show is going to be like, you watch that show based on the title. But Cougar Town is the best sitcom on television, and Dan Bird is great in it. I'll take your word. He was also in a couple of horror films and things after this. So this is the earliest role I've seen him in where I paid attention. But I think he is such an upgrade to the Mark Petrie character than the actor we had last time. Because he comes across as a realistic teenage boy who's a little bit rebellious. He's supposed to be in the book a lot more like he's portrayed in the first movie, into magic, able to slip out of ropes, very smart. Here he comes across more average, but he also is more likable for it. You know, the Toby Hooper, I kept thinking the stars of this are Ben and Mark, and here they're the least interesting characters. I don't care about Rob Lowe. I don't really care about this kid either. There's a large cast 
they're not the ones that are drawing me in. I think it's a nice choice that he is being raised by a single mother and that he goes back for her and that's when Barlow grabs him. There's some talk towards the end that Barlow tries to convince him that he's his father after he looks into his eyes and hypnotizes him. I think that's mildly interesting, but overall, I don't think that this character is, I don't know, what he was in the Toby Hooper movie. Oh, bullshit. Bullshit. Because he got raped <laughs> in the Toby Hooper version. Because look at what Mark Petrie does in the book and in this adaptation. He kills Straker. He is tied up in that house. He gets out of the ropes and he kills Straker. And in the Toby Hooper version, he's nothing but a guy in distress. What are you talking about he kills Straker? I don't understand how Straker died in this one. He's just seen strung up, bled to death. He was killed by Barlow. Because he failed and was ambushed by Petrie. Petrie overcame Straker and was the person who basically, for all intents and purposes, took Stryker off the playing field. Okay, I guess if you look at it hard enough, that is true. It doesn't play that way. Yeah, I didn't get that at all. It doesn't feel like, wow, the kid killed Donald Sutherland. No, I'm probably influenced by having read the book and done the books and nachos. But in the book, that played very important to me, is that there are two villains. There's Barlow and Straker. And there are two heroes. One takes out Barlow. One takes out Straker. Here, he hits him over the head, and the next time we see him, he's dead. And it's because he failed. So no matter how you look at it, Petrie takes out Straker through cause and effect. And that makes him one of the heroes of this movie and of the book. He does nothing of value in that fucking toby hooper version not having read the book it doesn't come across that way to me it was more confusing it's just all of a sudden i took it that barlow i guess he is mad at straker i don't know he just shows up strung up all of a sudden it's not clear if you haven't read that material i took it as that barlow was yes displeased with donald sutherland and looking for a new assistant which is the way that it really colors and explains his confrontation with father callahan this time i feel like this scene is way better now than it was back in the Toby Hooper version. And I liked the scene in the Toby Hooper one, but now with James Cromwell having to save Mark in order to face his demons and Barlow, he becomes the new striker, right? Yeah, that's how it is in this version, and I do like this better. Honestly, this is my favorite confrontation of the three. I like this better than Nosferatu versus a crucifix. I like this better than Stephen King's version where the priest's arm starts to glow and all I can think of is the last dragon <laughs> because he gets encompassed in this glow around him. I'm like, wow. But I do like this where he's forced to drink the blood. He is forced to drink the blood in King's version, but he doesn't become the minion. It seems like he's going to and he just flees. This is far more satisfying an arc. And the fact that he goes and fucks up Matt in the bed is shocking to me. I mean, I see it coming because James Cromwell tells in his face that he's about to do something evil. But I still love that we have a new striker which helps make Barlow seem stronger at the end of the film versus one man down. We know because from the very first scene that Callahan is still around after whatever happens is going to happen in Salem's Lot, we know that this could be the new head dude. This is certainly someone to reckon with here. I think it ties in with his flaws as a character. You know, he was a drunk. 
And we learn that he was a drunk largely because he felt like a fraud. He he didn't believe in God, and yet he was a priest. And so I just think it's apropos that Rutger Howard makes him drink his blood and has that great line about God is whoever feeds you. I really do like the relationship. The sad part is that Rutger Howard is not in enough. I would have been very happy if half this movie was those two teaming up and committing the evil. I as much as I enjoyed the goofiness of Donald Sutherland, they could have offed him much earlier, and I think it would have been okay. Oh, when Donald Sutherland is going after Susan and doing his poop, poop, poop song thing, high point of the movie for me. Whoa, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) High point, no, no. (laughs) Not the high point, but a high point. I like Callahan more than I like Straker, and I like that he is playing a role here. You're right. When he stakes him and taste of your own medicine i really think that yeah it was unexpected the character just kind of dropped off the map in toby hooper i don't even remember what happened to the teacher in that movie but here yeah they're making sure to put him in the ground well one aspect from the book that they changed in the toby hooper version is this mystery where's barlow and Hooper went on record and said that's really stupid because this thing is so much about the Marsden house that the climax needs to be at the Marsden house. And it's anticlimactic to have Barlow staying somewhere else and then have the climax where Ben had been staying the whole time. But here we go back to King's version where because Mark was captured, he knows about chalk on Barlow's hand and they start researching the chalk in the book. It's actually pool cue chalk, and they remember that the boarding house had a pool table in the basement. Here, it's not really chalk, it's plaster dust, and that boarding house is having its basement remodeled. Totally forgot that detail. It's like one scene with a bunch of angry carpenters that don't like Rob Lowe. But yeah, that was it was a surprise. But like I said, got the best kill out of it when they go into it. But then they pull out Barlow there. Do you guys feel like the house should have been a bigger part of this climax? I was disappointed that the house seemed really downplayed here. That, again, was one of the strong points in Hooper's film. That I love the look of it once you got inside, the feel of that house. Here, they spend a lot of time. I, I thought it was the climax, but no, we had another, what, 50 minutes left as they're searching around this house. It, it just didn't have the same vibe, but I also felt like the house wasn't as played up in this film as it was in Hooper Salem Lot. Here, yeah, there's some lines about it, but it doesn't feel as central to this story as it did originally. Yeah, and that's both to good and ill. I mean, I do feel like even in this version, the climax should probably happen in the creepy house that he always wanted to be in. I mean, Ben makes a point of saying that he wanted to move in, and that's, uh, you know, his fight with Crockett. Everything has been about, I want to move into that house to get to the root of evil, that the root of the evil is in the boarding house that he gets stuck in, is unexpected, a little anticlimactic, but on the positive side... By not expecting it, it makes me more intrigued. It makes me think we might get a different ending. But no, Barlow still gets killed pretty easily. Yeah, I'll say that I never once thought about it in King's book, but because a book is more cerebral, you don't miss a set piece when it's not in your climax. And when I read Hooper's statement, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense for a film. And here, I did wish the house played more of an end. The second thing, the big eye roller, is when they're about to stake Barlow, and it's like, I'm not the vampire. You're the vampire, Ben. Oh, really? Well, yeah, I mean, if they wanted to make that parallel, and it's not a bad one. They both show up at the same time. They're both preying on the town. 
I agree. I agree the metaphor is there. I just think they should have made it through subtext instead of actual text and hitting us over the head with it. Agreed. And I just feel like I would want more of a battle. I'm not saying an action scene. I mean, it's just so easy to put that stake in him, really, there at the end. And nobody else even gets up. You know, Toby Hooper, there were other ones trying to get the kid. I mean, nothing's really happening here. It's just a lot of CGI dust, and then his eye turns into a ring. I gotta ask, does that mean that all the antiques they were selling are bits and pieces of his body? Was that a <laughs> cursed antique store? No, seriously. I, I, it made me think that maybe that's why they were into antiques, was that his, I don't know, he can make rings out of his body parts. I did not take it that way. I thought the ring might have been in him or something. I don't know what he was into for fun, but I didn't think he turned into the ring. I just thought the ring came from somewhere. So was he going through all his, I guess, past reiterations as he was dying? I mean, one time it looks like he's a conquistador. and Is this a way to show that he's really super old? Yeah. Yes. (laughs) I think Stuart and I are on the same page. I didn't know that that meant that you could, like, swap genders and become, like, a geisha or whatever. I mean, like, it wasn't like I put on different outfits throughout times. It was I have different races, heights, body types, genders. Well vampires can change form it's so unclear i also took it as maybe these are some of his victims whose soul remember nightmare on elm street 4 when the souls were trapped in freddy's chest you always (laughs) go back to nightmare on elm street no it has nothing to do with nightmare on elm street hey explain to me the geisha then if not a trapped soul in barlow's body it doesn't make sense that they're trapped souls because we see with susan that she doesn't become free when he dies i don't know it actually she kind of does float upwards well here's a question so we start seeing them when they're killing different vampires like you know remember when miss glick kind of just disappeared i thought okay they're gonna improve that uh, not really they kind of fly up his ceiling and turn into dust is that their soul being redeemed their devilish demonic body not being able to go up to heaven but their soul is i was wondering why all those vampires seem to rise up in the air like that that is what i took actually was that i believe that this was yes the small town was being judged by the house and thus the occupants of that house And the evil was holding people down, and we're seeing, once the evil is done with them, that, yes, they're ascending to a higher plane. It's not really clear, but yes, that is why I take it to be that every vampire has to die on the ceiling. Yeah, I'm the same way. I take it as very much they are being released and able to go to heaven. So the best way to get into heaven isn't to live a good life, it's to be turned into a vampire then killed. (laughs) i don't know maybe you should write a vampire bible jacob i i don't know but we know ben goes to heaven because we have that american beauty scene (laughs) i don't always go to a schlocky horror god damn it (laughs) um yeah you know i I like this ending i didn't know what to expect i did have a feeling that the kid was still around i mean that was Something that was clear in the Toby Hooper and in the book, I figured that the kid would come save him is kind of what I figured. I figured Callahan would get out of his bed and try to kill Rob Lowe while he was trapped in the hospital and that it would fall to the kid to protect them. They play it a little bit differently here, but I think that it was the right thing to have Rob Lowe tell his story, change a heart and have the Christian let the killer go. I thought that was interesting. I don't like that they kill Ben, though. I just think that that's kind of a lame out. It brings it back to the religious themes, you know, Jerusalem's lot and 
price figures. And, you know, I don't want to get too steeped into this. I don't think you can. I, I don't think it's really there. It's not worth it, but it's definitely there. They're definitely playing with the themes. Little bits are there, yeah. They're not shaping the themes in a way that's definitive. That he has a martyr's death uh, may or may not be important to the rest of the story. But I do feel like more than the other version of the TV miniseries, this has been about judgment and God and being a good person or bad. It gives an end. If nothing else, it means that Rob Lowe won't be back in a made-for-video sequel. Perhaps he'll return as a guardian angel. I like that Mark gets away even though he has no place to go and no parents and no guardian now. (laughs) He's going back to that soup kitchen. (laughs) I was thinking his own private Idaho, but either way. I mean, even the orderly's just like, go. He's not going to help him either. He's homeless. No, I took that ending differently. I mean, it was the Christian saying, I'm going to allow this to be. I felt like he was a cynic when he was first hearing the story. And by the end of it, even though he says something like, I don't believe what happened, he's willing to let Mark escape with a crime that he probably shouldn't. And let's face it, this guy could have been fired for five different reasons. (laughs) And let's face it, hospitals have a lot of security. Somebody knows what happened. It's on a camera. (laughs) Sure. But why don't we go on record? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend the 2004 version of Salem's Lot? Jacob. Look, I was pulling for this film. There was a lot of room for improvement. Yes, like Toby Hooper's film got a weak recommend for me, but I even recognize there is a lot of room for improvement there with the town, with the characterization. So do I get that here? Well, yeah, but is it enough? It's very melodramatic. It's very TV to me. I don't know. That's what sticks out to me is, yes, this is what I expect from a TV film. Is it satisfying? Well, some of the characters, they do get better arcs here. I'm still not that engaged. In fact, I think I'm even a little more put off this time because there are so many characters. We're spending time at the city dump and Crockett now is this evil corporate CEO. And I don't know, it gets expanded. It gets more muddled to me. Hooper's film, there's more of a simplicity to it. It's slower than that, but I don't know. Here, I'm still not engaged with the characters. And then you add a huge drop-off with the horror element that I like so much. Here, this is a vampire film, but it doesn't feel like that's its main goal. That it's more about this town's judgment than about scaring me or creating this atmosphere uh, that's spooky with these supernatural ghouls running around. And the characterization, it got a little bit better. The writing got a little bit better. But then there was a huge drop drop off in what really engaged me was the horror. So not a recommend for me this time. Stuart. Yeah, I'm going to recommend this one. I think it's the best of the lot, if you will. And I think that it's pretty close to the book. Now, I recognize they've changed things. And if you're a king fundamentalist, it may irritate you some of the choices that they've made. But I think that this is a pretty solid adaptation of a flawed novel. I mean, I think that Stephen King's novel has some of the problems that are reflected in all of the movie versions of it. And so they've made a very compelling town, and I feel like I really care. I would have watched this as a series. I think it's a testament to this cast that I would have followed what they were doing, even if the storylines took even more time than they do. Where it does fail, and I want to stress this heavily, is that I do not think this is in the least bit scary. And as such, a lot of people that are horror-inclined may be bored with this. This is not what they signed up for. You said American Beauty, Arnie, and that's closer to what this is than it ever is Dracula. Toby Hooper was an attempt to modernize Dracula. This is very much 
another dark drama about the social ills of small town America. And so that's not your thing. Don't do this one. But if you're intrigued by that, or if you did like Stephen King's book, I say give this one a shot. It's a recommend. I wasn't sure what I would think of this one coming in. I know that I didn't like the 70s original one. And normally with all of our retrospectives, but especially when we talk about King, I tend to think that the original one we're going to talk about is going to be the strongest and then we're going to get some derivatives and things. But I said with this original one when we started, I never felt that that one was really as boilerplate as Kubrick's The Shining or as De Palma's Carrie. So with this one, I did feel it had an advantage going in. I mean, it wasn't a movie before. It was a TV miniseries that, yes, did get DVD release, but so many years after the fact that, and that butchered VHS version, it seems very forgotten and forgettable. So with this one, I am going to give it a recommend. It does have problems. And Stuart, you say the problems are for horror, but to me, the problems are it's a TV miniseries. And the level of horror we see here, we're going to see again and again when we do more TV miniseries from Stephen King. I mean, one scene that I think epitomizes bad Stephen King TV miniseries is when Floyd is in the prison and he's trying to crawl through the... <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the distortion lenses. Yeah. There's just It's pathetic. He's supposed yeah. to have broken his own bones to crawl through a vent, but it's quite <laughs> obviously he's in a funhouse mirror. Yeah. <laughs> it's really poor. It's not scary. It's timed to be some kind of cheap special effect working around a commercial break. And this is what you get with King on television. You're never going to get the scares, the shocks, and the gore that you can get in a theater because it is TV. But I find it entertaining. And I think so much of that goes to the cast. You guys seemed really turned off by the vampire stuff. But you give me Donald Sutherland and especially Rucker Hauer, who we kind of glossed over in this review, but Rucker Hauer... Like the film does. Yeah, I agree. We spend as much time as the movie does on him. Yes, but when he's there, he's magnetic. I love what they do with his eyes. I love what he does with the lines. The first scene when he's revealed in that junkyard with Dud is just a really really great scene i read that scene in the book and i'm like i I don't know how that could play i just had trouble envisioning that scene seeing it here it's a great setup i like this showing of how the vampirism spreads like a virus more than i like what we saw in the hooper version but not as much as i like in king's book rob lowe as the semi-conflicted main character I like the whole group of heroes. They are charismatic, and they are able to act well, and they come across likable. The only character in this whole thing who I just didn't quite click with was Samantha Mathis' Susan Norton, and that's just the way the character was written. But yes, it is a TV miniseries. I'm judging it as a TV miniseries. If I'd paid $18.50 for a 3D ticket for this, it would be a bright red arrow. But for something that was on TV and runs three hours, it's a green arrow. I'm going to recommend this and call it the definitive film version of Salem's Lot. If anyone says, I don't feel like reading the book, which version should I watch? I'm going to point them to this one. 
But that's only because they haven't done Salem's Lot the musical yet on Broadway. <laughs> but that will be the one, I'm, I'm quite sure. Yeah, they still need to like make different versions of this. We still don't have a theatrical version. We don't have a musical version. I don't think they made any video games of this one. Come on, marketers. I don't think they ever will. They've made video games of Carrie? I feel like they could have. Or maybe with this new one. Who knows? But You dodge the buckets? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I feel like this one is underexploited, and maybe that's a good thing. But because it's a more tricky novel, I do think it may never be a theatrical experience. They may never be able to turn it into that. But it's weird to me. I've never gone to a theater to see Salem's Lot. Well, that said, I mean... There's just not a lot of King happening in theaters that much anymore. Carrie is a exception now, whereas we could count on one to two to four King films a year. So I agree with you, though. Even though this is widely considered by King himself and his group of biographers as one of his top five books of all time... I don't see this one as reaching the iconic status, perhaps because there isn't a good film version. This has been, and there's no plans to change it that I've found, a TV slash direct-to-VHS property. I I think it's on par with The Mangler. Oh. As far as popularity, not as far as quality. Oh, okay. That will be settled next year, <laughs> and I don't think you will be proven right. But I'm hopeful. No, no. In terms of popularity, people are, when we do this retrospective, people are excited for our next movie, The Shining. I don't know too many people who were wiggling in their seat like, Salem's Lot! Yeah! <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I don't know that it would have been asked for, requested in the way that we have with Kubrick. Very, very excited when we move on to the third book in Stephen King's career, The Shining. That's what's up next. So we'll be back with that next week. In the meantime, if you need more now playing, you guys hounded us with emails, tweets, Facebook posts, forum posts. Give us Chucky. Well, we are. Just till December 31st, though. Find out all the details at nowplayingpodcast.com. It is a donation series, and your donations do help keep us on the air. But we've done our two donation drives. This is more to give you guys what you wanted. You want a review of Curse of Chucky? Here's all six Chucky films reviewed. All the details by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. And also, while you're at nowplayingpodcast.com, click the link over to booksandnachos.com. My third and final Salem's Lot review was released yesterday. And also, head to the forums. Let us know which version of Salem's Lot sits best with you. It's funny, none of them got all red arrows from us. I find that to be rather shocking. Do you guys agree? Tell us in the forums or on our Facebook and Twitter pages. Links can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. So, Stuart, Jacob, thank you for joining me. You bet. And until next time, ciao, Constable. You will drive them out of their hiding places. All of them? No. We'll purify Salem's lot. And the others will be on the run and on the hunt. For us. For us. 
thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. I just don't like things that suck your blood and have conversations afterwards. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear reviews and analysis of the original Stephen King's Salem's Lot novel and short stories Jerusalem's Lot and One for the Road from the Night Shift Collection. Literature's become elitist. It's like black and white photography. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com to hear our reviews of other Stephen King movies, such as Carrie. And join us each week for another new King movie review. You take your mother and anyone else that you could persuade to go. In the archive section of our website, you can also hear reviews of other films, such as The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, Riddick, Friday the 13th, The Avengers films, Star Trek, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. Why don't you come up and have a drink one night? To tell you the truth, Richard, the place scares me. While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. I used to think nothing happened here. But the truth is, everything happens here. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. What would you give for this miserable boy? Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Whoever feeds you is your God. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy panties, coffee mugs, t-shirts, totes, boxers, teddy bears, and much more. 95% of our business is done online. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Saints preservers. Now Playing's Salem's Lot retrospective series is edited by Heath and Arnie. Don't you guys ever sleep around here? I mean, don't you even get tired? Now Playing credit narration by Brock. What a rude boy talking to his father like that. And in front of company... The Salem's Lot films are the property of their copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Let it be. Sometimes these badges get in the way. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Would you feel more comfortable if we stepped into the confessional? Now Playing is a Inganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced repurposed or redistributed without the written permission of Inganza Media Incorporated. It's been a gruesome day. Rest in peace. Right. And you know what? I feel like I feel like there's a helicopter coming right at me. Hold on. <laughs> I thought you were being metaphorical. <laughs> I know. I'm like, what helicopter was in this movie? What What is that feeling that this movie has given you that makes you feel like you're under attack in Nam? How oh, I always remember him. So you know, I I don't know. Not this... in Babe or in Star Trek. <laughs> I had forgotten about Babe. <laughs> don't forget about Babe. He does not turn him into bacon at the end. That's right. I guess we are going to have to cover that series. Then there's two of them. Hugh, Hugh, I keep, I struggle with that name. Is it Hughley? Hubie. Hubie.
Hubie. Hubie, yeah. I didn't okay. get that I, name. It's weird. Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard it in my life. And he's yeah. married to Birdie. I'm like, God, Hubie and Birdie. It is, it's an old name. It's, a, I've actually known somebody who's now dead, but they were in their 80s named Hubie. Mm, and may that name stay dead with a stake <laughs> in his heart. The Stand. Oh, you're right. I'm not thinking about that. Not for another year. <laughs> More than that, I've got to read that thing twice. I, I could read the Bible <laughs> faster. But the priest's arm starts to glow, and all I can think of is the last dragon. Because he gets encompassed in this glow around him. I'm like, wow. Would it be true if anything glowed? Do you think of the last dragon got the glow? Yeah, yeah I kind of do, yes. If they start oh, saying okay. that a person starts to glow with colored energy, I do think of Shonaf. <laughs> okay. Just to put it out there, because I don't know that that's what most people would get watching this movie. Uh, uh, my my next reference is the climax of Ghoulies. Of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't always go to a schlocky horror, goddammit. <laughs> are, are you sure you're not thinking of uh, Ghoulies 4? <laughs> when the Ghoulies got their higher education? <laughs> that was Ghoulies 3 and you know it. <laughs>